Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode looks at the difference between slogans and solutions. In the months after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, there was a massive outcry over police violence against African-Americans. The protest movement was multiracial. In many towns and cities, whites marched alongside blacks and other citizens of color demanding change. But what sort of change? Better policing, not posturing, with civil rights lawyer and activist Nakima Levy-Armstrong. Many of her in our community have felt racially profiled, racially stereotyped, demeaned, and made to feel as if our lives do not matter and as if we are criminals or criminals in the making. That is a very different experience from what many white people encounter when they have contact with police, if they even have contact with them at all. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? There's a racial divide in how different communities view the police. But as we will hear in this episode, it's complicated. Our guest, Nakima Levy-Armstrong, lives and practices law in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed. For years, she's been a leading black voice in the community, demanding deep reforms in how police officers do their jobs. She says the Minneapolis Police Department has persistently abused black residents, even children, and that all too often, blacks have faced persistent racism and inequality. But she is also very critical of white progressives in her city, including city council members who backed a ballot initiative last month that would have abolished the police department and replaced it with a Department of Public Safety. That initiative was defeated in part because black voters opposed it. We find out why. After the defeat of the Minneapolis ballot measure, Nakima Levy-Armstrong wrote an op-ed in the New York Times called Black Voters Want Better Policing, Not Posturing by Progressives. This issue affects not just her city, but many others around the country. Richard, you spoke with her a few days ago while I was away. Somehow you managed to get through the interview on your own, and, and it's a fascinating discussion. I wish I'd been part of it. Why don't we go to your interview? Nakima Levy-Armstrong joins us from Minneapolis. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thank you for having me. Let's start with that ballot measure. While many white liberals and progressives backed it, you and many other black residents disagreed and voted against. Why? Well, I think 
a big part of the reason has to do with Black people's concerns about uh, being a part of an experiment without there being an adequate plan connected to the proposed ballot measure. So for years, many of us have been pushing for systemic changes within the Minneapolis Police Department, pushing for reform, calling for accountability. Our activism in the streets has taken many forms, you know, in terms of literally shutting down freeways and streets and holding rallies and demonstrations, going to um, meetings at City Hall, testifying. And so when I think about what happened with this ballot measure, there may have been some well-intended individuals who were attempting to come up with a new idea, but it's been uh, nearly a year and a half since George Floyd was killed. And in all that time, we never saw a, a written plan in terms of what the new Department of Public Safety would entail. What is in that ballot measure, apart from the proposal to replace the, the police department with something else? The ballot measure would have shifted power from the mayor to the mayor plus 13 city council members. So that would mean that 14 individuals would have oversight of police. And the relationship historically between the mayor and city council members have been, has been very acrimonious. And so we've seen, you know, a lot of infighting, an inability to make cohesive and coherent decisions. And many of us were concerned about what that power dynamic would entail. And the uh, increasing challenges of holding anyone accountable if power is spread amongst 14 people. The plan also would have removed the minimum requirement um, for a number of police officers in the city of Minneapolis. Right now in our city charter, there is a set requirement of X number of police officers per X number of residents. The folks who were pushing for that ballot measure were saying that we need to remove this requirement from the charter to increase flexibility. But a big part of the challenge has to do with increasing um, rates of gun violence that have happened since George Floyd was killed. The combination of the pandemic coupled with the murder of George Floyd has led to a skyrocketing number of gunshots being fired, as well as people being shot, including several children who have been shot and some who were killed in recent months. And so the Black community in particular felt the pressure and felt some of the fear and the concern about not having adequate uh, public safety in place to address the needs of the community. And, and part of the concern about removing the minimum number of police officers is whether or not that was going to disproportionately impact the Black community by having fewer officers responding to 911 calls or shots fired or whatever other emergencies were happening in the community. You wrote in your recent New York Times article that the ballot proposal would have almost certainly created a cascade of unintended consequences that would have harmed Black residents. Um, what are examples of that? We are um, disproportionately impacted by violent crime and homicides in the Black community. We know that the root of a lot of these issues has to do with a lack of economic justice. Because if you look at 
the issues within Minneapolis. You know, we essentially have one Minneapolis that's for white people and one Minneapolis that's for black people and other people of color. The white population, 70 to 80 percent own homes versus roughly 23 to 25 percent of black people owning homes. And we know that that is indicative of the huge uh, gaps in income as well as generational wealth and, um, and access to, to capital and loans and, and other resources. And so that leaves people in our community more susceptible to being victims of crime. And so people were very concerned about feeling underprotected. I think the other side of the coin when we're talking about policing in our community is the fact that many folks in the Black community want to see a change in terms of how the Minneapolis Police Department operates. People want to know if they do have to call 911, someone is going to show up who's professional, who treats people with dignity, who's not going to be physically abusive or demeaning in terms of their um, approach. But at the same time, folks were uh, concerned that if there are fewer police officers, that those officers might be likely to be dispatched to the wider affluent parts of Minneapolis as opposed to the poorer Black parts of of Minneapolis. The city's largest Black neighborhoods voted down the ballot proposal that would have replaced the police department with this uh, Department of Public Safety. Support for that reform was greater in areas where more white progressives lived. Do these two communities view policing through a very different lens? You know, it's sort of a mixed bag, right? It's it's complex how the Black community views police versus folks in uh, wider middle-class areas or wider, more affluent areas. I think that some folks are more likely to see the police as officer-friendly, there to protect and serve them, when too often in our community, at times we are over-policed and, and underserved. And at other times, we also experience disproportionate rates of police abuse and criminalization. I think that um, a lot of the folks who decided to vote yes on the ballot measure were um, doing what some have called virtue signaling, essentially voting yes because they wanted to send a message that they were not okay with how the Minneapolis Police Department has historically operated, and of course, how they operated on the day in which George Floyd was being killed. I think that many folks in our community felt as if virtue signaling is not enough if there is not a concrete, well-researched, comprehensive plan that we could look at to know with as much uh, precision as possible, how it's going to actually impact our community on a day-to-day basis, as well as over the long haul. I'm glad you mentioned that this is very complex, because to us, politics in this country on, on many different issues is all too often dominated by slogans, when what we're talking about is very complex. Do you agree? I do agree. Given the layers of complexity, given how long this has been going on, given the fact that we're in the midst of a major shift and still in the midst of a a global pandemic, that we have to be 
uh, much more precise in terms of communicating exactly what is needed. Now, as someone who has studied these issues for a very long time, I am in full agreement that the United States rock, relies way too heavily on policing as well as on the system of mass incarceration as a system of social control. However, uh, at the same time, it's, it's important for us to look at the current situation we're in and to examine and re-examine the role of policing within our society. I don't think that we've done enough of that. We, we take for granted that cities are thinking about these things when they put their budgets in place, but that hasn't been the case. I think that um, at least in Minneapolis, what our elected officials have tended to do is to focus on the size of the police department, not necessarily its functionality and its effectiveness and ensuring that Minneapolis residents are getting the best bang for their buck for the amount of money that they are spending on our system of policing. The better way that we can approach this situation is to ensure that every year there is a robust audit of the Minneapolis Police Department. They're looking at where officers are dispatched, how they're utilizing their time, uh, looking at the clearance rate for actually solving homicides and other violent crime, and how they are utilizing their resources when it comes to low-level crime. Many of us feel that police are spending far too much time um, harassing people, pulling people over you know, for minor um, traffic uh, violations. It, it costs the city a lot of money when that happens, but there is a greater human cost as well when people are pulled over and they're terrified of what is going to happen in an encounter with police. And um, if they're given a citation where they have to pay a fine or appear in court, that is very disruptive um, to people's lives as well as their jobs and can even impact their housing if they're found guilty, for example. And then when you throw in the inadequate levels of legal representation for poor people and people of color, that only makes the situation worse. We're speaking with Nakima Levy-Armstrong. On How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. Jim Meggs is away this week. I'm really looking forward to hearing people's views on abortion, environmentalism, and immigration. The division makes me feel frustrated. A single news story can make me feel like I'm an expert on a topic, but a single discussion with someone who knows a lot more than me will make me very quickly realize I'm not. You just heard a clip from IDEOS Institute's documentary, Dialogue Lab America premiering on January 5th as part of the National Day of Dialogue. Sign up to watch the film and join a nationwide movement of empathy and action. Visit www.nationaldayofdialogue.com. Nikima, this podcast is hosted by Jim and I. We are two white men who come from comfortable middle-class backgrounds. We went to college, good colleges. We've had long careers in journalism. What do you think that I should understand about policing that perhaps I don't? Well, I think that when it comes to uh, the Black community, as we uh, talked about before, we have a very complex history and relationship with the police. 
Um, also, it's important to remember the origins of the police, which began as slave patrols, uh, hunting so-called fugitive slaves, and then at some point being uh, professionalized as an institution. Now, just because police officers may have um, academic credentials, such as getting their, their bachelor's degree or whatever degree connected to um, criminal justice, that doesn't mean that they are necessarily culturally competent, that they know the history of Black people in this country, and that they even know the origins of the profession that they chose. So many of these officers hail from white suburban communities where they have little to no contact with the Black community and other communities of color before they put on that uniform and that gun and that badge and they come into those communities. And typically when they are being called to 911, they're coming out at, at a time of crisis when some people are at their very worst. And if you combine a crisis mode with a lack of cultural competency and understanding surrounding race relations, it's a recipe for disaster. And so many of our, in our community have felt racially profiled, racially stereotyped, demeaned, and made to feel as if our lives do not matter and as if we are criminals or criminals in the making. That is a very different experience from what many white people encounter when they have contact with police, if they even have contact with them at all. What's the importance of empathy and listening? I think that empathy and listening are both vitally important when having these very sensitive, complicated conversations about the police. I think that too often white residents want a quick fix in terms of just wanting to be done with the conversation and wanting to move forward and trying to bring forward solutions that, again, may not be vetted well. Um, by the communities that are likely to be impacted. One clear example throughout our history is looking at what happened with the war on drugs, where we saw um, in the 1970s and 1980s, drugs flooding into poor Black and Latinx communities, as well as an increase in uh, gun violence in those communities. And people were crying out, wanting relief, wanting safety. And Congress responded by hastily enacting legislation that is comprised of the war on drugs. And that led to mandatory minimum sentences and the sentencing guidelines, which removed discretion from sentencing judges and placed it in the hands of a very rigid structure, along with prosecutors who exercise nearly unfettered discretion. And so what started out as a cry for more safety led to a significant increase in black and brown people, including black and brown women, going into the criminal justice system. That has had a devastating toll and impact on uh, the black community and the Latinx community that we still haven't recovered from. Reforming the police in Minneapolis is a difficult task that could take many years, right? Yes, it, it could take many years, primarily because we didn't get into this problem overnight. And I don't think that we'll get out of this problem overnight. The way that I see it is it's a marathon and not a sprint. So, for example, there's a police federation contract, which gives certain protections to police officers 
And also um, due to the contract coupled with our system of arbitration, we've seen officers who have committed harm against community members uh, or against whole communities get their jobs back after being fired from our police department and going through arbitration. That's a huge issue that needs to be addressed. In the state of Minnesota, there is no residency requirement for police. So in Minneapolis, that means that unfortunately, 92% of officers here don't live in the city of Minneapolis. So we have these officers from white, suburban, and exurban communities and patrolling a racially diverse city with deep divides and far too often reinforcing notions of white supremacy and, and, um, and inequality. From your perspective, what would be the most important reform? It's hard to hone in on just one. With regard to the Minneapolis Police Department, I would say that, you know, some would argue that it's in disarray because hundreds of officers have left the force. I think that this actually gives us an opportunity to look at who is still on the force, to look at their backgrounds. Have they been involved in uh, committing acts of violence against Black people and other people of color or even white residents in the city of Minneapolis? Um, why, If so, why are they still on the force? We also need to end the practice of police officers stopping people for low-level uh, petty offenses. You know, if someone has a busted taillight, for example, they should not be subjected to um, abuse and humiliation during those stops. And they also should not have their car searched, which is something that has been happening here for many, many years. We also need to ensure that if officers do violate people's rights, that there is a robust disciplinary policy in place, as opposed to what we have right now, which is essentially coaching of a wide swath of officers who actually should receive much more serious discipline for their conduct. Uh, we also need to incentivize uh, police officers to live in the city, as well as grow our own. You know, young people, for example, who are coming out of high school, make sure that there are pipeline programs if they want to enter the field of criminal justice and become an officer, that the resources are there to make that happen. And are you hopeful that there will be workable reforms and the relationship between uh, people of color and the police force will improve? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm hopeful because at this point in our history, more people than ever are paying attention to the institution of policing and the role of police in our society. Um, additionally, to how budgets are being used to bolster uh, public safety and sadly to contribute to some of the issues that we've seen happen here and in other places around the country. I'm also hopeful because there are dedicated people here in Minneapolis and the Twin Cities and around the nation and even around the world who are willing to take to the streets 
to demand justice for black lives that have been needlessly lost at the hands of the police. I think in recent years, since the Black Lives Matter movement began, we have literally seen more police officers prosecuted for killing people than at any other time in our history. That would not have happened without people taking to the streets and shutting things down and making their voices heard. I don't have trust in the system. I don't have trust in elected officials, but I do have trust in the power of the people. And one need only look at what happened during the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, when the people couldn't rely, when Black people couldn't rely on their government to protect them and to dismantle Jim Crow. They took it upon themselves to get out into the streets, to protest, to boycott the busing system and businesses that were perpetuating racial discrimination and white supremacy. And those actions helped to ring the death knell in legalized segregation in this country. And so that's where I draw my hope. And I'm seeing a resurgence of that type of energy and passion and commitment and empathy to help change things for the better. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Nakima Levy-Armstrong here on How Do We Fix It. Up next, a recommendation. Richard, you have something for us? I do. King Richard is a movie, and a very good one. Uh, The story of Richard Williams, played by Will Smith. Richard Williams was a man with a plan as the father of two young girls. In fact, it was a 78-page plan to ensure tennis stardom for his daughters Venus and Serena. And Williams' wife was also very much part of his plan. Together, the family overcomes tremendous obstacles and shows great discipline and moral strength and courage. This is an uplifting and and really well-told story about one of the most remarkable sports dynasties uh, anywhere. Can't wait to see it. So our conversation, Jim, I I was struck by what Nakima Levy-Armstrong said on several fronts that could please both conservative and more liberal audiences. For instance, she talked about value for money, bang for your buck, when pointing out the need to reform and, and make the police department more efficient. Yeah, you know, you say conservative and liberal. Here's an area where it's just so frustrating that people even use that framing sometimes, because when it comes to preventing crime on the one hand and protecting citizens, and on the other hand, making sure that the rights of citizens are protected and they're not subjected to abusive policing, those two things should be easy for any one person to believe in. And I thought that the point she made that was really, really telling was when she said that white progressives are basically asking to perform experiments on the black community, an experiment in de-policing. It's not going to affect you very much in your wealthy white neighborhood, but if you live in a poor neighborhood, a decline in policing is a terrible threat to you. And this is not just a theoretical problem. We see it in the numbers of violent crimes and murders in city after city after city, and the victims are overwhelmingly people of color, especially young black males. One thing that she talked about was how police are trained. 
And we have, I think it's 17,000 police departments across the country. And I know that you would probably be very skeptical uh, as, as a squishy libertarian at having national rules for the police. But how do we deal with this? How do we make sure that even small town police departments have minimum standards when it comes to not treating people of different races, different uh, economic backgrounds differently and denying people their rights. I'm not sure. I, I don't know what the, the solution is in terms of a, of a national solution. Uh, I do think that what we see uh, very clearly in a lot of these issues is that police unions have too much power and they make it hard to discipline unruly officers, certainly libertarians. People might be surprised to, if you actually read, say, Reason magazine or other libertarian outlets, how hard they are on the police. And they feel that police misconduct is a significant problem. That doesn't mean we don't need police. I think that one area that she talks about, which is really important, is that police departments need to establish some kind of early warning system to flag uh, problem officers. Uh, when police violate people's rights, that there is a way to either punish those officers and in some cases kick them off the force. But as you say, that's a problem in many cities where uh, the police unions are very powerful. It ought to be an area where both sides can come together. Unfortunately, this there's this tendency in a lot of our politics to think that the, we if we moralize the problem, that kind of thinking leads to simplistic solutions that often backfire and wind up hurting the very people you claim to be trying to help. Absolutely. And I think something else we can really agree on, Jim, is that as Nakima Levy Armstrong wrote, she says that solutions take hard work and not just rhetoric, political posturing, and empty promises. It's a good way to end. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and we're a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check out our website at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.